You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 7. If you've got kids that are a part of our younger kids class, they can be dismissed to the back. Genesis chapter 7, we've talked in the past couple of weeks um, about how the the account of Noah, uh, there's multiple things in the story of Noah that point to greater things to come. And we started specifically by looking at Noah and how there is a greater Noah that his story points to, and that's the the account of Jesus Christ. And, And we said specifically that while Noah is counted as a righteous man, that ultimately his righteousness is based on the righteousness of Christ. And so while Noah, in all his glory, is a great guy that that we can learn a lot from, he's a fallen sinner that's a descendant from Adam, and he's he's got an inherent sin nature that has to be dealt with. And so Noah, in his righteousness, a righteousness that's based on faith, as we saw, it points to Christ, a a man who comes as the God-man and is perfect, without having to rely on someone else's righteousness. And so Noah, great, Christ, greater. Uh, We also looked last week at the account of the ark and how the ark was a protection vessel for Noah and his family, um, that it provided protection from God's wrath that was being poured out on the earth. And yet the ark in all of its glory points to something greater as well. The New Testament talks about in our salvation, we are placed in Christ. And so Christ is, in, in the view of an ark, Christ is a better ark for us as believers because not only does Christ protect us from God's wrath, Christ protects us from Satan and his devices. Christ protects us from temptation. Christ protects us from trials and temptations. Christ protects us from the law and the condemnation that comes from the law. And so Christ is a better ark. Um, and then today as we move into Genesis chapter 7, we see that um, there is a greater judgment that's coming upon this earth than even what we see in the account of the flood. And so uh, the flood and all of its devastation, it ultimately, according to the Bible, points to a greater judgment that's to come upon the earth. But let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 7. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month and on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. 
And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it's and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you would... Teach us and encourage us, provide conviction where we need it, Father. I pray that you would challenge us uh, in our response to this history. Um, Father, in the same way that Peter called his contemporaries to, uh, to yield to the warnings of the past, Father, I pray that as we examine this passage of Scripture that we too would uh, be warned of the past and what it means for the future. So God, I pray that you would teach us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What we find first off here in this passage in your notes is that God brings a proper judgment to the earth. Uh, What we have here described in chapter 7 is God's judgment through the flood, um, that he brings water upon the earth in a devastating way. And yet what we find is that it's a proper judgment. Um, it, It sounds potentially extreme to us, certainly extreme to critics that would want to view God as an overreactive type deity that responds to uh, minor sins by bringing a complete devastating flood on the earth. And yet what we find in scripture that God is very clear to identify the proper reasons for this judgment. What we've seen is that the flood came in response to wicked man's evil intent of violence and sexual perversion. That's what's described for us in chapter six. It's a wicked Mankind. It's a mankind that is bent on doing evil, that is bent on wrecking violence on others' lives. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a people group that have strayed very quickly from God's standards of holiness. Um, it's, a, it's a people group that is being led in the ways of Satan. And, and uh, what's at stake, what's at jeopardy is the gospel and the, the, the uh, preservation of a godly line for the Messiah to come from. And we've seen these reasons in weeks past all culminating to chapter 7 here where God's judgment comes upon the earth. It's a proper judgment, a judgment that's right. And we've described before that God's wrath is his proper response to sin. It's not an over-exaggerated response. It's, it's meted out in a way that is pro- appropriate and proper based on man's sin. We find that the people that are punished here in Genesis 7 are a people that are without excuse. In your notes there, the antediluvian people were without excuse. Antediluvian means before the flood. 
So the people that lived before the flood were without excuse. They were people that had revelation, that had knowledge given to them that they were held accountable to responding. Um, some things that you can jot down that, that show that they're without excuse. First of all, there was the messianic legend that was still in existence. Um, you'll remember that Noah's dad is looking forward to the Messiah. He's talking about the one that will come and give rest. And so that, that, that messianic understanding existed in that time. Even though we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after creation, we've talked about the fact that if you line it up on a timeline, that a lot of the people that were alive early, Adam and Cain and Abel, uh, Seth, that in that time frame, a lot of those people are still alive within the last few years of the flood coming. That these descendants, because they were living so long, they were stacking up with each other. And so you had people who were there early on that were still testifying to what life was like in the garden. That knew somebody that knew somebody that knew Adam. And so this wasn't so far disconnected that it was a, an old way that, that had been forgotten. There were still people alive at that time when Noah was born that were very conscious and very aware of what God had revealed in the Garden of Eden. Secondly, we know that uh, there, were, there was the concept of sacrifices going on, that, that the line of Seth had instituted set times of worship. Right, So there were people who were calling upon the name of the Lord, the Bible tells us. People coming from the line of Seth that had instituted set times of worship. Much like we have today, where people drive by on a Sunday and see church after church after church meeting around an organized time of worship. There was that type of structure going on in some form at this time. People were worshiping at set times. We also know that, that God had very specifically marked Cain in some way. So there was that, that visual reminder not that long ago for people to know that Cain had been marked by God, that he was protected by God. You'll remember that even his descendant Lamech references God's protection. So there was an understanding of God and his working with his people that was going on at that time. Um, the preaching of Enoch, Jude 14 and 15, references that Enoch was a faithful preacher during this time. That, that it's not that long ago that he's taken to heaven before the flood comes. And so Enoch had been very faithful to communicate truth to these people. Even the, the, the miraculous taking of Enoch serves as a sign. The fact that he is, he is taken, which was really maybe their first indication that there was life beyond death. Uh, here's a man who escapes death, who goes to some location... Uh, where he escapes death. And so the taking of Enoch serves as a sign for these people. And then ultimately the preaching of Noah. The preaching of Noah in 2 Peter 2.25, we're told that he is a preacher of righteousness. <coughs> that at some point in his life, and he's 600 years old, <coughs> when he enters the ark, he was a, he was a communicator of righteousness. Um, he, he was teaching faithfully who God was and, and what God required. He's a man of righteousness, but he's a man that didn't keep that righteousness to himself. He communicated it to others. And so these people are without excuse. This is not a, a quick judgment or a rash judgment. You'll remember even that we talked about Methuselah being a man who, who God 
specifically communicates through his name potentially that he will live and when he dies, the flood will come. And we said that in God's grace, Methuselah is a man who lived longer than anyone else. That his name means when he dies, it will come. And so God in his forbearance and his kindness allows Methuselah to live longer than anyone else, giving that opportunity for repentance. John J. Davis says the nature and extent of God's judicial acts always reflect the seriousness of the sin which is being judged. The nature and extent of God's judicial acts always reflect the seriousness of the sin which is being judged. The sin of that time was obviously very serious for God to judge it in the way that he does. The sins in the antediluvian period were so serious, near total destruction was the only thing that would satisfy God's holy demands. What we find today, though, in your notes, is that the world today is without excuse as well. That the world today is without excuse. This proper judgment through the flood points to a greater judgment that's coming, and and Peter references it in his letters in 2 Peter Second Peter chapter three, verse five. Previously, he's talking about those that will come in the end that that doubt the return of Jesus Christ. It says in verse five, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter references two historical events here. He references creation and he references the flood. And he says that people deliberately forget those things or deliberately ignore those things. The flood and creation are two events that scientists, secular scientists, attack and criticize constantly. Because to admit that those two things happen have huge ramifications. Huge ramifications. Scientists want to disprove that God ever existed and and intervened in time to create what we have. And then certainly want to dismiss that there's a God who exists with the power to, to judge an entire planet. If those two things are true, then it should have huge ramifications for how we live our life. And so scientists attack these two events. They criticize these two events. They want to cripple uh, mankind's belief in these two events because secular scientists understand how important these two events would be if they were true. And it's like the scripture says, it's, 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 it's a fool that says there is no God. It's a fool that says these things don't exist. It's not because scientists lack evidence. It's they lack the desire to see these things. They lack the desire for them to be true. Paul or Peter says they deliberately overlook these facts. They deliberately overlook these facts. We know from Scripture as well in Romans 1, 18 through 20, that the whole world is exposed to general revelation. That Paul reminds us that the entire world is without excuse, even those that have yet to have the gospel penetrated to their culture, that they are without excuse because of general revelation. Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The whole world is exposed to general revelation, and yet what we also find in Scripture is that much of the world and eventually all of the world will be exposed to special revelation. General revelation being how God reveals himself in creation and created things that we can see eternal things about God, that that he's eternal, that he has divine power. And yet it's through special revelation where we need uh, a deeper understanding of this God to understand salvation. And it's through special revelation that we come to understand his plan to save mankind from his sin through Jesus Christ. And so special revelation has been made available to much of the world and eventually all of the world. According to Acts 1.8 it says, But you will receive power, Jesus talking to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus giving that commission for his disciples to go and to be that witness. And it's a plan that works because according to Matthew twenty four fourteen, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We know from Revelation that there are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping before the throne. And so the indication is, is that the whole world is without excuse when the, when the final judgment comes. That general revelation has already been made available, that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, so that when that final judgment comes, they, the people that are in existence here on the earth at that time, will be without excuse, just like the people when the flood came. They had heard preachers of righteousness, Enoch and Noah, The gospel had gone out during that antediluvian time, and the people had rejected it. It was a proper judgment that we read about in Genesis chapter 7. But secondly, it's also a planned judgment. A planned judgment. This isn't something that was coming that God decided to then use for his purposes These events are orchestrated by God. In Genesis 7, 4, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Number one in your notes, the flood was planned according to God's timing and will. This was a planned punishment. This was not something that that God just snapped and decided, okay, this is what's going to happen. I've reached my boiling point and I can't take it anymore. And then it wasn't God just issuing punishment until he had had enough and said, okay, now I'm going to relent. We would call that abuse. Parental abuse happens when someone reacts to their kids and reacts until their, their anger and wrath subsides. Proper discipline is being able to take a child and being able to instruct them about what they've done wrong, instruct them about why it's now being handled the way that it is. 
something that we try to do with AJ when we're, when we're disciplining him. We try to instruct him about what he's done wrong. And we, were, we had a great conversation at our accountability group this past week about this. We want to take AJ and we want to communicate to him what he's done wrong. We also want to communicate to him what is going to happen as a consequence. If it's a spanking, we communicate how many times we're going to spank him. And we also communicate what's going to happen after the discipline has happened. We want him to understand the whole process, that it's a planned thing, that we are reacting to his actions, but we're reacting in a controlled manner where it's appropriate to what he's done, that we're not just lashing out because he's lashed out at us, that we are responding, and sometimes it can be physical where we have to spank him. But we do so in a way where we communicate to him so that he understands that it's planned and that it's not an overreaction of abuse from us. That it's planned, that it's thought out. We're actually telling him how many times we're going to spank him. We're not going to just spank him and wear him out until we feel like, all right, that was good. You know, he's crying enough now or, or he's felt it enough now. You know, we communicate to him, hey, I'm going I'm to spank you two times for this. I'm going to spank you three times for this. So that he understands, he's able to connect what he did with the consequence. And then I'm usually very quick to tell him, buddy, when we're done, we're going to spend some time together. I want to hug you and I want to love on you. And I want you to understand that we're done with this, that the punishment has been inflicted upon you, whatever it is, whether it's a timeout, whether it's a spanking, it's a planned punishment. And that's what we have from God. It's a planned punishment. It was something that he planned. It was designed to come at a certain time. We've already talked about the the indications through Methuselah's death, but we also find in Genesis chapter 6 that he says, I will only tolerate for another 120 years, that the the judgment is coming in 120 years. Not only that, but in our text or in our chapter for today, God communicates that in seven days, verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth. He communicates that it's coming and when it's coming. It's not a... A, a boiling point that gets reached. It was well thought out. It was well planned. It's also possible that these extended seven days are so that Noah and his family can mourn over Methuselah. You remember we said that Methuselah was supposed to die, and according to records that we have, he dies at the same time that the flood comes. But in Genesis 50.10, you find that they grieved for seven days over um, Joseph's death. That it was a seven-day period of mourning. And so it's very possible that Methuselah died, and then for seven days God gave them the peace to mourn his death before those rains actually start to come. Regardless of why there's an additional seven days, we know that the animals are probably coming on the ark and there's last-minute preparations. Regardless, what we continue to see is that it's a planned punishment, a planned judgment that God institutes here. It's also designed to last for a certain time. God doesn't just leave it out there that indefinitely I'm just going to let it rain and rain and rain until I get tired of rain. <clears throat> he said it's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights and then it's going to stop. He communicates to them the end of the punishment. It's going to rain for a certain time. It's going to produce the result that I want it to produce. Everyone's going to die from it. But there's an end in sight to this punishment. It's designed to last for a certain time. And then lastly, it's designed to produce a certain result. All of life not in the ark will die. That, that's the desired result. God says, because of the sin, because of what has happened, judgment's coming. It's coming at a certain time. It will last a certain period of time, and it will produce a desired result. That all of mankind, all of life will be destroyed 
because of this sin. The second coming is not that much different when we examine it. The second coming is planned according to God's timing and will as well. It's designed to come at a certain time. In Matthew... Chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. It's a judgment that's coming. It's coming at a certain time. God has not willed it for us to know that time. But the Bible says he knows that time. So while we can see some evidence as to when the flood was going to come, our insight into when the second coming happens is is very limited. We're given some signs to look for. We're given some indicators that, that remind us that God hasn't forgotten and that God intends to send Christ once again. We don't have as intentional indications like maybe the flood had, but what we do have is an assurance that there is a set time when this will happen. That that God the Father knows when this gospel plan will culminate with Jesus coming back for his people. That's an assurance to us that, that we don't have to wait for God to reach his boiling point with the sin that's happening in our world today. That we're not waiting for it to get so bad that then Jesus comes back. We can trust in God's timing and his sovereignty and his perfect will that he is going to send Christ at the appropriate time. I tend to believe it's when the last person that's supposed to get saved gets saved. That when he is called his final person to be a part of his family, then the end will come. When the gospel is extended as far as it will extend and attracted all that it will attract, that Jesus will then come in all his glory for his people, rescuing them from God's wrath and ushering them into perfect glory for eternity. That's coming. That's coming. When exactly, we don't know, but we're assured that there is a set time. So we don't have to wait indefinitely hoping that one day God will decide to do this. We know that God has already decided to do this as he had already decided to send the flood. The second coming will also produce a certain result as well. Second Thessalonians chapter one. When we went through this book, we talked about the encouragement that's offered here. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul assures us that when Jesus comes back, those that are anti-gospel, those that have rejected the gospel will be dealt with with vengeance. They will be pushed away from God's people forever. So all those that cause pain and suffering will be dealt with 
God will come in all of his glory. Jesus comes in all of his insight. He sees into every crevice, every dark corner, and he's able to deal with it appropriately. Paul also says he comes to offer relief to those that have responded to the gospel. Relief from affliction from others, but also relief from the affliction of sin and temptation that continues to weigh us down. That when Jesus comes, it's relief, but also affliction. And how you've responded to the gospel determines how you receive that judgment day. The same for Noah and his family. They experienced relief because if what's true, and we believe it's true because the Bible tells us, that the culture that Noah and his family were living in was awful, a violent, perverted, evil culture. So when the rains start, it's relief for Noah and his family. Because when they exit the ark, it's Noah and his family. They don't have to worry about all the evil intent that was there before them. It's, it's relief. It's relief. There was affliction for those that were rebellious towards God, but relief for Noah and his family. The same for us as his children. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us, tells us there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's not just about affliction and relief. It's also about the glory of Christ being secured through his second coming. And then back in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will, be, will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed jesus is coming in all his glory he's coming to reveal everything and to deal with it appropriately and then number three in your notes here and it was an extensive judgment it was a proper judgment it was in response to man's sin god's wrath was appropriate it was controlled because it was a planned judgment he sends the rains intentionally at a certain time for a certain period of time with a certain result desired and it's an extensive judgment. What we find here in this text is that the flood bears witness to universal sin and universal judgment. The way the text reads, it's clear that sin had extended into all of life. That all of man was guilty and all of man deserved God's judgment. Now, there's a lot of debate as to how extensive the flood was. And while I don't know that it's completely necessary for our understanding of the text, I do want to, to deal with the issue in some sense. And so I want to give you some of the arguments that are, that are presented for a global flood. Some of the arguments for a global flood. What I believe is, is, is without doubt is that the flood extended to all of life. Now what may be up for debate is how far had life extended. Okay, so when we read the text, the natural reading of the text, and that's really the first, the first reason uh, or for the first argument for a global flood, the natural reading of the text is that the flood extended all over the earth. The overall universal flood language used, if you were trying to write about a global flood, this is how you would write it. Okay, so in, in Genesis 7:21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land. 
in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. If you read that, you don't walk away saying, maybe it just flooded Noah's city. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When we read about Sodom and Gomorrah, we hear about the fire coming down from heaven and consuming that city. But the text is very clear that it happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. That the, that the rest of mankind didn't endure that firestorm. But when we read this text, what we walk away from is thinking, man, it got everybody. It got everything. Like nothing survived. So what I feel like is, what I can confidently say is that the flood extended to as far as life had extended. Right? So, so God had created Adam and Eve and told them to, to be fruitful, multiply, to spread out. So however far they had spread out, the flood certainly reached those points, I believe. And I believe it's very possible that it consumed the entire globe because if our population numbers are accurate that we estimated, life had extended pretty far. That it had gotten pretty far. With the amount of years that it had passed and the amount of time that people were living, it's very possible that life had extended pretty far. We find that all of flesh is corrupt according to the text and only Noah was found righteous. So that helps support a global flood in that Scripture communicates in chapter 6 that all flesh had been corrupted by sin. All mankind seems to be destroyed. According to Luke 17, it doesn't seem to, to allow the, the possibility or the exception that others were spared as well. Luke 17, verse 26. Just as was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Second Peter 2.5 says that God did not spare the ancient world. It's my belief, too, that if it was a localized flood, that migration would have solved the issue versus Noah having to build an ark. Right when when God communicates to Lot and his family that, that that a storm is coming that is going to wreak havoc upon his people, he's not instructed to build a storm shelter. Right, he's not instructed to build something that will preserve him. God says, "Run and flee out of this city because this is a localized punishment." With Noah, the understanding is there's really nowhere to flee to. You can run from your house. You can run to the next city, to the next city, to the next city, but the indication seems to be the flood waters will catch up with you wherever you go. He forces him, in a sense, he forces Noah to build an ark because he communicates to Noah, this is the only way to be saved from what's coming. And so, so Noah has to spend years constructing this massive, this massive boat that would have cost him everything. For it to be a localized flood, it would have been far easier for him to just run and flee like Lot did. And yet what we find is that Noah is called to build something massive, not only to spare his family, to spare animals as well. Animals that would have existed if the localized flood happened, right? There would have been a lot of animals that died in a localized flood, but there would have been plenty of other animals outside of that localized flood that would have continued to exist. It would not have been needed to preserve them, as the text says, for their, for their, um, their kind to be extended after the flood. The indication is, is that if they don't come into the flood, there won't be any of that type of animal left after the flood. <clears throat> um, 
The, the text indicates that the goal was to destroy humans and animals from the face of the earth. Every living thing was destroyed. We also find in chapter 8 that God promised not to resend a flood like this. So back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We move into chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. If it's a localized flood, even a large localized flood, God has broken his covenant. Because there have been plenty of localized large localized floods that have destroyed at times even millions of people. There have been millions of people, especially in other continents, that have died through floods. If, if those floods are any way similar to what happened here in Genesis 7, then God has been unfaithful to his covenant because God communicates something to know in his family that they can find assurance in, that I will never destroy the earth again with a flood. And yet God has destroyed portions of the earth with floods. And yet remains faithful to his covenant that he will not destroy the entire earth with a flood. To me, it's strong evidence that it was a global flood that we read about in Genesis 7. The depth of the flood described, uh, the mountaintops being covered, lends itself to being a global flood. The longevity of the flood, we're going to see in Genesis 8 that Noah and his family are in the ark for over a year. Even though the rains come for 40 days and 40 nights, it takes days and days and months and months for the floodwaters to recede. The longevity of the flood communicates global flood versus a localized flood. The intensity of the flood described here in Genesis 7. In Genesis chapter 7 verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. We have a reversal of creation happening here. When, when God brings this judgment, you'll remember in our, in our study of creation week that God separated the waters. Remember the waters above and the waters below? He separated it and created a living environment between. What we have now is the, the reinstitution of those waters together. That it's not just rain that's happening, there's water bursting forth from the ground, flooding the earth. The, the intensity of the flood described here communicates global flood. The rainbow as a universal sign communicates global flood. The fact that God says that seasons will continue, the fact that he communicates you can now eat meat for food, all these things communicate that Noah and his family are the only ones left. The only one's left, and that this sign is now a universal sign that God will never bring this type of flood again. Noah is now viewed as the new father of the human race. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, <clears throat> the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. 
in Genesis 10:32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The communication here is that everybody can trace their lineage back to Noah because he's the only one left. He and his family are the only ones left after the flood. His kids, his boys are the only boys that are producing kids after the flood. So, so the indication is that it's a global flood. It's also interesting to note that there are flood stories in every other culture around the world. This shows the historicity and the universality of this. Think about this. In other cultures, in other cultures, when we study other cultures and we, and we excavate and, 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 and do archaeology, that there, there, there are stories of the flood in all other cultures around the world, all other continents. We find stories of a global flood. Look at some of the, the consistency. In these stories, they always involve survivors and boats. In these stories, 88% of them have a favored family involved in it. 70% of them are saved by a boat. 95% of them, uh, they are the sole source of the catastrophe, or the sole source of the catastrophe is a flood. 66% uh, relate the flood to man's wickedness. 67% have animals being saved in the boat. 57% end up on a mountaintop after the flood. Other consistencies we find in the stories, birds being sent out, rainbows being mentioned. What you find is that the further you go from the Middle East, the further the story starts to deteriorate. But what you find is that the story stays somewhat intact all the way around the earth. A, a global flood because it had a massive impact on the people that survived it. They got passed down and passed down and passed down. And you obviously had some kids that weren't listening very closely because they distorted some of the details. But what they did remember is that the earth had a lot of rain at one time. And here's some of the, this is some of the details that I remember dad telling us about. And then some of them got exaggerated and some of them got changed. But what remains consistent is a story of a flood, a catastrophe related to man's wickedness where God saved a family. The flood parallels the future and uh, a future involving the whole world as well. The return of Christ in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, both those passages talk about the flood and the similarities to Jesus coming back. We don't believe Jesus coming back is a localized event. We believe that it will have global implications, right? We also see that the judgment of fire is coming in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7, an event that will encompass the entire world. Peter's testimony, <clears throat> which we already read about, Peter is saying that God intervenes in history and he overturns the normal workings of nature. That's the point that Peter's trying to make. When he references creation and the flood, he is attacking people that say, Jesus is not coming back. The world will continue as it always has. Localized floods are events that can be attributed to nature. What Peter does is he draws upon two events that cannot be attributed to nature. He says there was a time when God intervened and created. He stepped in and created the earth. And there was also a time when God stepped in and flooded the earth. Two things that demanded divine intervention. And then Peter goes on to say there's coming a day where he will do it again. Where he will intervene once again, not with water, but with fire. And will bring his judgment upon the earth. Peter's indication seems to be a global flood some arguments against a global flood 
These are all, and I'm not going to give you specifics, what I want you to understand is that all the arguments against a global flood are scientific in nature. They're scientific in nature. It's taking science and saying this wasn't possible because of what science tells us. What we find, and it's similar to what we found in the creation story, is that we can either start with science and work our way back to the text So we take what science tells us and then try to interpret the text in light of it. Or we start with the text, which we know to be infallible and we know it to be true, and we work our way towards science. Because ultimately the science that we're talking about is science that is observed. And there's there's people that are trying to make decisions as to what happened to to produce the results. And so we have scientists that start with science and say, okay, the text is impossible because we have this. Whereas we can look at the text and say, okay, this is what the text says. I'm not sure how it works itself out completely in science, but I think it's always important to remember that a lack, um, a lack of explanation doesn't mean impossible. Just because I can't explain it doesn't make it impossible. We find in Scripture all the time that divine miracles cause scientific problems. If we try to explain, if we try to explain everything through science, then we minimize the divine aspect. Is it possible for a man to live inside of a giant fish for three days scientifically? I don't know. But it's not up to me to prove that it's possible because I believe that there was divine intervention happening when Jonah was in the fish. I don't have to scientifically prove how a man comes back from the dead three days after he's been in the grave. I'm not trying to prove it scientifically because I'm admitting that there was divine intervention that happened for Christ to come back from the dead. So, there's responsibility in our part not to be just silly and ignorant and make statements and, and, and hide behind the text and say, well, if the Bible says it, then it has to be true in this way. That science a lot of times affirms what we find in Scripture. But we shouldn't panic if we see conflict with Scripture and science. Because we can't minimize the importance of the divine aspect that we have going on here. This was a divine judgment. This wasn't a normal flood. So we shouldn't expect it to produce normal Naturalistic results. Um, so, so again, we're not going to spend time because I don't think it's appropriate necessarily in this setting to to talk about a lot of the arguments against the flood in general. They're out there, and you can do your own your own study and your own research for it. What I want you to understand is that those that criticize the flood criticize it from a scientific standpoint, and to understand that Peter predicts that that Peter predicts a deliberate, intentional overlooking of the flood. So we, did, we should expect critics to say the flood didn't happen. That's impossible. We should expect that because it's the same people that say it's impossible that Jesus Christ is coming back for his people one day. And while I can't scientifically prove that, I've based everything in my life on that hope, science or not, that the text has told me that and I believe it and hold true to it. And then lastly here, the coming judgment will be extensive as well. The flood was extensive. I believe it wiped out every living thing beyond that which was in the ark. And I very confidently believe that when Jesus Christ returns, that his return will have global implications as well. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed the application for us this morning two things that i want to draw your attention to what we find 
in, in Peter's discussions, the point that he's making, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. What Peter is wanting his readers to understand when he references the flood, when he references Sodom and Gomorrah, is that God is faithful to rescue his people from trials. God is faithful to rescue his people from trials, especially the coming judgment. And so the, the, the question of application for us is, will we faithfully endure? Will we find the encouragement needed to endure to the end? Will we, will, we, will we reap the encouragement that Peter presents by referencing the flood, reminding us that if God has spared Noah and his family, if God spared Lot, then God will most certainly spare his children today. In the midst of trials around us, in the midst of wickedness around us, he will preserve us until the end. We endure to the end, though. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we must endure to the end. Then the last point of application, God is graciously delaying the certain coming judgment. God is graciously delaying the certain coming judgment. And so the question of application for us is, will we be remembered as preachers of righteousness? God is graciously delaying the certain coming judgment. Will we be remembered as preachers of righteousness? That's how Noah is remembered. He's given an extended time to build the ark. And his reputation is that he was a preacher of righteousness. And I was thinking this week as I was studying, Noah must have had regular conversation with his boys to keep them inspired to build the ark, if they indeed helped him. There had to be constant communication by Noah for his family to walk into that ark, to have invested everything to help him. It had to be a constant communication. It couldn't have just been something that he taught him as a kid, and then he kind of revisited it later on in his adulthood. I imagine it was something that they constantly talked about in their family. The judgment's coming. We live differently because of that. The, 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 the way they handled everything, the purchases they made, the decisions they made, you know, the, the boys were like, hey, can we do this? No, no, we're not doing that. Why? Because the flood's coming. We're not, we're not, we don't need to worry about that. We don't need to do that. Why? Because the flood is coming. I imagine it was a point of conversation constantly. And, and what, what convicts me is that it's got to be a point of conversation in our families as well if we expect our kids to embrace this type of worldview that we're talking about. If we just sometimes talk about Jesus coming back, then it doesn't resonate with our kids every day that they wake up and they, they go to school or they're, they're uh, uh, engaging the culture around them that, that is deliberately ignoring the fact that Jesus is coming back. 
If we're not deliberately reminding them, then they will fall prey to the deliberate ignoring that's around them. See, I want AJ and Abram to embrace the biblical worldview that I'm teaching. But I also want to make sure that I'm embracing it as well. And that I'm constantly reminding myself that Jesus is coming back and that everything around us is going to get burned up one day. And I want my boys to embrace that so that the decisions they make, the type of people they want to spend time with, the the girls that they want to date, the occupations that they pursue, that everything is shaped by the belief that Jesus is coming back one day. And the only way they're going to buy into that is if I'm constantly reminding them of that. You know, part of the reason that when we started Sovereign Hope, part of the reason that we even named it what we named it was we wanted to be a church that you couldn't come week after week after week and not constantly hear about Jesus coming back. That it's not just for when we study Revelation and we do a special series on Revelation that we talk about the second coming, that you can't read the New Testament without reading about the second coming. And so it's to be a point of conversation every time we gather together. And it should be a point of conversation weekly within our families. And so I challenge our dads, I challenge our moms to, to make sure that you're, you're reminding your children that Jesus is coming back. And that we're to be prepared for that and we're to live differently because of it. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we come to you this morning and we are grateful and thankful that you are a holy God, a God that does not tolerate sin. We also confess that we often praise you for not tolerating sin because we're thankful that you don't tolerate the sin in the lives of others. Because when other people sin, it typically affects us. It brings harm to us. It brings consequences to us. And oftentimes we're blinded to the fact that our own sin is tarnishing our life. And so, God, we come to you this morning and we're thankful that you are a holy God that, that deals with the sin around us but is also intentional to deal with the sin in us. And we know that you're that type of God based on, on the stories that we read here in the Old Testament. That you don't take sin lightly. That it draws out deadly anger from you. And God, we know that while it it seems drastic for you to flood the entire earth and to wipe out everyone beyond those in the ark. If we look deep enough, we can see that it was a, a proper judgment that was warranted by the actions of man. But God, I pray that we would be reminded this morning that our own sin warranted the same type of reaction from you. And yet, God, we can rejoice this morning that that reaction was, was placed upon your son, Jesus Christ, when you poured out wrath upon him on the cross. Wrath that we deserve because of our sin. So, God, help us not to be guilty to look in the past and, and believe that these people deserved this as though we did not. God, we know that as righteous saints today, we are only righteous because Jesus Christ earned that righteousness for us. But God, we do rejoice that you are a a hero, a savior that fights against sin. And Father, we look forward to the day when Jesus Christ comes to provide ultimate relief where sin is dealt with once and for all. Father, we long for that day. I pray that we would endure faithfully as a church until that day. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to preach righteousness to others, specifically our children here at Sovereign Hope. 
that we would raise them in a culture that constantly reminds them of Jesus' return. In the same way Noah's sons would have constantly been looking for the rains to come because their daddy constantly talked about it. And they could constantly see his actions and how he invested every single day in light of those coming waters. God, I pray that our fathers would set an example in their families where wives and children can be reminded constantly, both by words and actions, that Jesus is coming back one day. Help us to faithfully orient our lives around those truths. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.